into things like modern art. Any big fans of, of that whole kind of vibe? Have you been to the Tate Modern, seen any of those sort of things there? Well, there was a lady and she was visiting this kind of trendy art museum uh, when she turned to the curator and pointed at the wall and uh, said, I suppose you call that hideous thing there modern art? And he looked at it and said, no, ma'am, uh, we call that a mirror. Oh, um, the point is, sometimes we see things that are very, very familiar to us, but we kind of, um, they become so familiar, so part of life, in a sense, that we don't really see them, we don't recognize the true nature, even when they're looking right at us. Jesus, Lamb of God, that's what we're looking at tonight. You would have heard that phrase, if you've been around church any time, you may have even sung it as part of a song, or part of a liturgy, or kind of, um, yeah, just a phrase that's used or prayed. But if you say a word over and over and over and over and over again, it kind of loses meaning, it loses sense sometimes. And I wonder whether for us, we don't really know. We kind of know, Jesus, Lamb of God, but what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? That's the whole point of this series, when Jesus said to the disciples, and looked Peter in the eye and says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Do we know him as Lamb? And what does that mean for us? We can lose sight of what's there right in front of us. A couple of years ago, um, uh, just before Christmas, um, I went shopping. I was getting quite excited about Christmas. And I bought, in a weak moment, a load, a bag of those nuts that you get at Christmas. You know the type of, I mean, they come in a little plastic bag. And I got really excited about them because I kind of had flashbacks to my childhood. And when I was young, we didn't have things like... Uh, electricity or xboxes so you know I, i'd get a bag you know we'd get some nuts and that'll be really really exciting um i hope things were so much more straightforward back in the old days um and if you buy nuts then you need a nutcracker right so i bought a nutcracker to have with these nuts and i got home now um people think i'm not very planned about life but i came home and i was thinking on the way home where i would put these nuts in the house this is the type of thing that fills my waking moments uh, because everything's got to be just in the right place. And I think you've got to put them where people would go to have nuts. And there was a table in the lounge. I thought, this would be perfect. I've got a bowl there. I can put these nuts in the bowl, put the nutcracker next to it, and then people at Christmas can have nuts and we'll all be happy. <coughs> it was a big moment for me anyway. So I got home, got the nuts, went to the bowl, poured it in, and, and right next to the bowl was a nutcracker. Who knew? I must have had that nutcracker for years and years and years. It was obviously there my whole life. All I had needed, all it was crying for out was for some nuts. It, but, it, but it puzzled me. I remember sitting there thinking, I've looked at this nutcracker probably for the, like the last four years next to this bowl. I've never thought what it needs is nuts. And I'd never thought or even recognized that it was there. This seemed much more important when I wrote it down in my sermon a while back. But the point was, we can, something can be there. We can get so used to it that we actually don't even notice it. We don't think about it. We don't acknowledge it. And, and in some weird sort of way, sometimes with some of these things about Jesus, we, we know them to be true. We're kind of there somewhere in the back of our mind. But we don't grab and grasp the real weighty significance and how important this is for us to know Jesus as Lamb. We can lose the earth-shattering truth of that name. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? We know that, don't we? Jesus died on the cross, Jesus shed his blood, pay for our sin. Next question. Well, that's what tonight is about. Jesus, Lamb of God. What does that mean for you and for me? Jesus, Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, we've been over these weeks 
in a fresh way, trying to have a fresh revelation of your son, Jesus. Jesus, we've been looking at you. Our desire is not to know about you, but to truly know you, to truly be known by you. Lord, we recognize that we can never really get to the end of the depth and the height and the width of your love. But your longing is for us to know you better. And Jesus, you asked the question, who do you say I am? Father, may we tonight encounter you as the lamb, the lamb that was slain. To have a fresh revelation of you as lamb, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know how many uh, Doctor Who fans are out there tonight, or maybe Marty McFly, Back to the Future. We're going to do a bit of time traveling tonight, backwards and forwards, um, as we kind of think through the Old Testament, New Testament, and we're going to zip about a bit. Um, but we're going to start when Jesus was about 30 years old, uh, and then we're going to go way back, and then we're going to go forward. So strap yourselves in, and this is where we're going to go. We're going to start with Jesus, he's about 30, uh, and with John the Baptist. Remember John? He's the wild man in the desert, uh, funky kind of um, camel skin tunics, eating locust honey. He's kind of a bit out there. And when he encounters Jesus, when he sees Jesus, he shouts out. This is in John 1, 29. Behold, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It kind of bursts out of him. I, I don't even know whether he was surprised by what came out of his mouth, but this utterance, there he is, the Lamb of God. Behold, and he points at Jesus, and everyone kind of looks around and goes, what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sounds familiar, right? We've heard that passage. We've heard John shout that out lots of times. But if you think about it, it kind of seems a little bit random. Um, it's, it's a familiar phrase, but perhaps over-familiar. And if we're honest, if we were greeted with that kind of proclamation, or um, I'm not sure I'd want that publicly, Lamb of God, what, what's John saying? I was talking to someone the other day about politics and about um, running to be an, an MP or a kind of mayor. And, you know, how people perceive you is really, really important in that sort of thing. So you can imagine if you're running for office and someone shouts out, look, over there, the cute, fluffy bunny. He's going to make everything wonderful, unicorns and rainbows and everything's going to be glorious. And you think, what? Why is, why is John pointing at Jesus, calling him the Lamb of God? Now, of course, those of us who have been Christians, we know with history, perhaps some of the images that come to us. But what was the significance of the, uh, uh, the time? Well, in our culture, perhaps the lamb doesn't mean very much, does it? You know, we, we think in our culture, right, Americans think about uh, the eagle as a sign of power. In Britain, we have kind of um, those lions. Are they called rampant lions? Is that right? Peter, you were there when they invented it. You remember. Yeah, I think that's the phrase. I really feel like I'm losing you all tonight. But for Israel, the lamb was deeply significant. The lamb as a symbol was obviously very, very, very powerful. For us collectively in the UK, it's lions, and for the States, it's eagles. They speak of power and victory and you know, put, put instilling fear into your enemy. But for Israel, it was always about the lamb because the lamb represented the continual process of God rescuing his people from oppression. So we're going to whiz back about 1,400 years BC, and the Israelites were lost in the darkness of slavery in Egypt. It's Israel, of course, they were the inheritors of the covenant of God. We, we heard a little bit about that from Paul last week, about the covenant with Abraham. So they knew they were God's people. They knew there was a promise. They knew there was inheritance, but that yet their actual experience reality 
was at this point was being surrounded by pagan gods in Egypt and being in terrible subjection. They were cut off from God. They were cut off from their land. They were cut off from their own identity. And they were physically bound by slavery in Egypt. But while God's people were, were wallowing in slavery, he hadn't forgotten them. And of course, many of you will know the story. He calls a man named Moses. He reveals himself to him as Yahweh, the God who is present. And so Yahweh and Moses confront the powers that hold the people in slavery. Now, there's a whole really interesting, you know, you, you know that all the different plagues that kind of uh, inflict the people uh, in Egypt. We haven't got time to go into it, but it's a really fascinating indictment of the gods that actually the Egyptians used to worship and how, in, in a sense, in that moment, Moses, through God's power, was spiritually attacking the kind of demonic strongholds over that nation, the false idols that were worshipped by the people of Egypt. And one by one, they were taken down and shown to be worthless compared to the power of God, the triumphant, glorious power of God. There's an incredible story there of freedom. God demonstrating his supremacy over all humanly constructed powers and religions and over kind of demonic strongholds and displaying his compassion for his people. But you remember the end of that story, just before they release from captivity, the final part of the judgment against those current pagan gods. God instructs the people to take a perfect lamb, to kill it and use its blood, and smear the blood on the doorposts of their house. So when the angel of death comes, it sees the blood of the lamb and recognizes that a sacrifice has been made. And that faith has been demonstrated in, by the smearing and by the placing of the blood on the doorpost. And so the angel of death passes over. It doesn't visit that household. Because faith has been at work. Faith in a sacrifice. Faith in the blood of a sacrifice that was made. And the next morning God promises that those people will be free. And of course that is what happens. And that's why of course the Jews celebrate the Passover. Because death passed over through the blood of the Lamb. And that's why in the re- reading we had tonight... They're about to celebrate the Passover feast, as all good Jews would do. Some 1,400, 1,500 years later, God sends Jesus out into the wilderness and tells him to head to the darkness of Israel, where the people are being held in slavery to their own self-righteousness, to their own self-deception, to sin under the occupation of the Romans, but held by a different kind of slavery, not slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt, but slavery really to the bonds of sin, their own brokenness, their own misconception of who God really was. They were held by the religious rulers of the day and they were held by their own brokenness and inability to connect with this God they yearned for. And so the Father sends Jesus to them. Jesus then in one way is kind of like another Moses but this time sent to confront the global powers of darkness, not just Pharaoh, not just the kind of local Egyptian gods, but sent to confront all the darkness and to lead God's people into freedom. So when Jesus enters into the region, John the Baptist takes one look at him and goes, it's now, it's here, he's the one, he's the lamb, the lamb who's come. We've been waiting for him forever. Under bondage, under captivity, we've been yearning for freedom. It's him. He's the lamb. And prophetically, something rises out of John as he points at him. He's the one 
not to simply set Israel free from the Romans. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the whole world. Because this time Jesus wasn't just another prophet like Moses. He was also the lamb itself. By the shedding of his blood, freedom from death and slavery is possible for everyone. All of humanity. And what a fulfillment of the promise of God that is. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Last week, Paul talked about it. If you were here, spoke brilliantly last week. And he spoke about Abraham, who was called to father a nation, father a people, people of God. And then he has this son, Isaac. And one day God tells him to take his son and to sacrifice him. Remember that story? It's a, it's a crazy story. It's a, it's, a, it's a deeply provoking, deeply challenging story. About 400 years before Moses, getting your timeline backwards and forwards. You know, Paul mentioned it last week. And, and there's remarkable willingness of Abraham to trust God, to sacrifice his son. We, we can only imagine what might have been in his head. You know, he'd been promised this inheritance. He'd been promised a son. And now God's telling him to sacrifice him. Do we imagine that maybe he believed that God would bring him back from the dead? We don't know what was in Abraham's mind as a father. I can't even begin to imagine what he must have been going through as he walks with his son up the mountain, ready to sacrifice his son. His son doesn't really know what's going on. He knows they're going to have this sacrifice to God. He doesn't realize that he's the one to be sacrificed. Can you imagine that journey up the mountain, knowing what God has asked him? And his son's really perplexed. At the, at the apparent lack of a heifer or a dove or a lamb or something to be sacrificed. And he, so he says to his dad, you can, you can read this in the passage, um, hey, Pops, we've got fire, we've got wood, where's the animal to sacrifice? There must have been that kind of heart-wrenching moment. You can read about it in Genesis 22.8. Abraham says this. Listen to these words. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. In that moment of deep, desperate pain in the father's heart as he's thinking of the sacrifice of his own son, he utters these words, which of course are prophetic. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb. See, that's the point. We can't add anything to it. We can't provide a lamb to take away the sin of the world or even our own sin or even my little sins or my big sins. God himself had to provide the lamb. There's a beautiful bit later on, um, verse, I think it's 13, 14. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket, this is after God tells him to stop. He's just about to slay his son, and God says, stop. You don't need to. And then Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate name of God. The Lord will provide. God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the perfect lamb. So because of this Exodus story, the lamb became a symbol of God's faithful, faithfulness and deliverance. So let's whiz forward from Moses some 700 years later, after Israel has actually itself now become um, exiled in Babylon. And we heard those words um, beautifully read, from the prophet Isaiah. I love, I love Isaiah 53. It's a fantastic book, fantastic passage. 
And we hear the words of the prophet Isaiah who promises that God will raise up a servant to deliver the people. He would send a suffering servant. Verse 6 and 7. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to its own way. Sheep are stupid, right? Now, I know I've got to be very careful because I know um, uh, Jenny's father looks after sheep. And so she may get a bit precious about sheep. But in my understanding of sheep, they're pretty stupid. If I'm honest, I've seen them a few times. And they do follow each other, right? they, They do. Jenny's nodding. It must be true. I was walking across a field once. This is a true story. It happened about four, four or five years ago. And, I, you know, when I was in the countryside, I was, I was on a retreat, just having my own business, spending time talking to God. And something kind of out the back of my eye, head, over here, caught my attention. I turned, and a sheep came hanging it past me. I didn't know sheep ran particularly, but this sheep was running like it was being chased by, I don't know, something. And... It just in a weird moment turned, and then another one came. And then another one came, and then I turned around, and I was suddenly, I could see, I actually got quite scared briefly. I'm not, sheep aren't that scary, but there were about 40 of these suckers coming straight at me. So I kind of moved left, and I watch all these sheep running across the field, assuming they're going to be chased by, you know, some snarling werewolf or something. There's absolutely nothing behind them. I don't know what happened to the front one. He thought, I'm going for a run, just for a bit of a jog, and the other thought, ooh, panic, and they kind of copied him. But the key moment for me was as it ran across the field heading towards a gate, like a big five-bar gate, very solid thing, I thought, is this sheep at the front going to jump it? I don't know whether he thought he was going to jump it. Could have been a sheep. Let's not be, I'm not very good on sheep. Um, it ran straight at this, but now, I don't know whether it thought it had a remote control button to open the gate, but it was running at this thing like it was assuming somebody somewhere was going to open it. As it got to this gate, I don't think sheep are very clever, as it got within about 15 feet of this gate, at least in my imagination, it began to think, oh, that's a solid gate. I might need to slow down. As it got within five feet, it obviously began to engage. Actually, it did need to slow down. As it got without one foot from this gate, it started to slow down. But the problem was there were 40 suckers right behind it going headlong into these sheep. And the, the sheep at the front, it was like a, something from Wallace and Gromit went up against the gate with all the sheep piling in the back. It was like a sheep, sheep crash. I don't know why I tell you that. Other than to say sheep are very stupid. And interestingly, the Bible quite often says we are like sheep. The truth is we do go astray. Something happens and we end up going off, not because we necessarily want to or we rationally think about it, but the point is there's a tendency within humanity to just get pulled off track or we get scared and we run or something happens and suddenly we find ourselves in a position that we never imagined. Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. It's not that it's just one or two sheep doing it, but we all. There's something within humanity that pulls us off track so easily. And we follow the wrong paths. We follow the wrong leads. Each of us turn to our own way. But the promise in this passage says that that's the state of humanity. There's none, no one's exempt from that. But the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the iniquity of us all. It goes on to say, speaking of Jesus, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. What's really interesting about this passage in Isaiah here is that when John the Baptist spoke and said, Behold the Lamb of God, he spoke in the Aramaic language. 
And the word for lamb in that language meant both lamb and servant. This, is often, this passage is often known as the suffering servant. So in essence, Jesus is, uh, John's pointing at, at Jesus and proclaiming to the nation of Israel, hey everyone, you know, we're under oppression from the Romans, That's really, it's a really big deal. But, but God has sent a lamb, a servant, the suffering servant for us, to bail us out. He's here. It's the promise. It's the promise of Isaiah. It's the promise of Abraham that God will provide a lamb. It's the final fulfillment of the Passover lamb where we have to keep making sacrifices because we keep screwing up and we keep having to be forgiven and we keep having to rend our, you know, our hearts and our garments and our sacrifices to God in order to win favor again and be restored. Finally, the perfect sacrifice has come. The one who's come for the whole world. The servant lamb. Remember, it wasn't just the shedding of blood that set the Israelites free. It was faith. It was the faith behind that act, in a sense. The blood of putting the doorposts, putting the blood on the doorposts, demonstrates to the, to the angel of death in that moment. This family was to be spared. They're a people of faith. They trust in God in the sacrifice that calls on his name. Jesus is the Son of God, the great shepherd of us all. His sheep. He's the shepherd of the sheep. And so in one remarkable divine moment of heavenly intervention, the great shepherd becomes a sheep. He becomes one of us. And more than that, he doesn't just become a sheep, he becomes the lamb, the perfect lamb of God to use his own blood to pay for the sins of the whole world. That's the deal. God offers an opportunity for us all to be free from bondage, to experience full, fullness of life with him. That's what we were created for. And God longs for us to be in a place of freedom. That's what the blood's about. That's what the blood on the doorpost is about for us. We don't go home and sacrifice a lamb and paint blood on the doorstep so that we can be free. But we need to believe that Jesus' blood is enough. That's the painting of the doorposts of our own lives, looking to him. Now, it's easy for those of us who have been around church for a long time to go, yeah, well, you know, well, I know all this, been there, got the T-shirt. Remember, though, that God instructs the people of God to observe the Passover feast, that breaking of bread and wine. He, he, he tells them to do it in remembrance of him. Why? Well, because he knows that there's something within us that can often forget or forget the significance of it. You know, you've only got to read the Old Testament and the New Testament to see the people of God continually battling with their faith, with losing trust in God and being restored and being challenged and kind of going off on the wrong path and the prophets, church leaders of the day, pulling them back into the truth. We can so easily turn back to slavery. We can so easily end up going back to Egypt. And as Christians, we must never lose sight of the fact that the blood of Jesus has set us free and is still on the doorposts of our lives so that we can experience freedom. It's through the blood of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace and mercy of the Father, that we can continue to walk in freedom. And we can't earn it anymore. We can't strive our way into it. It's done. It's done. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you, you'll have done that will make God love you any less. 
If you're under his grace, under his blood, you are forgiven. So today's a really simple message. It's a message of remembrance. It's a message to come back to realize that we're under the blood of the Lamb. And if you, if you don't know what it is to follow Christ, if you don't know what it is to be forgiven, well, that's the offer that's continually made available to us. It was great last week to see someone respond to that and to encounter God's forgiveness, God's grace, to know what it is to become a child of God. That's what it's all about. That's our message of hope to the world. You know, in a short moment, we're going to break bread together. And I guess the danger for any of us in any kind of church, whether we're a new church or old church, is that we just get used to the message, don't we? We know the stuff. Maybe we take communion. And it can become just a religious thing that we do. But Jesus is urging us. Guys, don't let this become religious. None of us are interested in religion. Jesus didn't come to set up a religion. Jesus didn't come to set up an institution. He came to create a family that would bring transformation through his body here on earth, through his body, you and me, through his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through signs and wonders, through words, through works, through his miraculous presence amongst us. And the danger is we can do religious things and become religious about them. But Jesus longed for his followers to have tangible things to remind them of his goodness and his presence and his power. So he gave us these symbols, bread and wine, to help us remember, to help us go back, to remember, to put back together that memory in our own hearts and lives so that it actually means something to us. And we're going to do that in a moment. Today, of course, we know, um, as Louise said, it's, it's Remembrance Sunday. It's a Sunday where we remember the great sacrifice of so many, particularly as we think about 100 years since the end of World War One. Well, today and every day, let's remember, of course, the greatest sacrifice ever made. The Passover lamb, the lamb who was slain for us. And this isn't just history. It's also future. We heard at the beginning, I'm going to read from Revelation 5. My prayer for you and me is that we have a fresh revelation of the Lamb. That we see him. That we encounter him. That we're overwhelmed by his glory, by his grace, by his power to heal. By his supernatural intervention in our lives. By the one who gave everything, everything, so that you can know the Father's love and be restored. Revelation 5. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and then when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you're worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, and every people and nation. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he'll lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. And so on that Passover meal, as they remembered your people's freedom from captivity in Egypt, Jesus, you took the bread, the bread that symbolized the unleavened bread that they'd quickly made before leaving and fleeing, and you took the bread and you held it up and you gave thanks because all good gifts come from heaven. And having given thanks for the bread, Jesus, you broke it and you held it out to your bewildered friends, to those disciples who had no idea what was coming. And you offered them each some of this bread. And you said to them, take and eat this. This is a sign, it's a symbol, it's a picture of my body which is going to be broken and rent in two. My body shattered, my skin and bones, my pierced, nails driven through my flesh, a sword placed into my side, blood running down my head from a a crown of thorns pressed into the skin, a body broken, so that you who are broken can be healed. Bearing your iniquity, your brokenness, your sin in my body. A perfect sacrifice. And you took the wine and you held it up. And you said, drink this. It's a sign of the new covenant, a brand new beginning. No longer under the old covenant. No no longer under the covenant of the law, trying to earn salvation through righteousness but freely now given covered by my blood painted on the doorposts of your lives so the enemy so that death has no longer any hold over you free free indeed children restored made whole under a new beginning a new covenant and Jesus in that moment you offer to us all a new beginning, access to the Father's love, redemption, freedom from sin and slavery because of your great sacrifice. So Jesus, Lamb of God, we bow the knee, we worship you. May we receive this bread, this wine, in remembrance of your great sacrifice for all humanity, past, present and future. The Lamb who was slain, we worship you.